In Christ's name, amen. My dad has an old newspaper, and he's had it for quite some time, that I think my grandfather purchased and saved until he died, and then my dad ended up getting it. But it is the Providence Sunday Journal, and the date is December 7th, 1941. And the headline reads as follows. Japanese bombing Honolulu, 350 dead, U.S. warships afire. Now that's a headline based off what, of course, was not the whole story. There would be many more who died on that terrible day. But there's a lot to be said for a headline. Within that, those short few words, there is so much within them, right? It, it's short. It gets to the point. Kind of like you're hoping this sermon is short and gets to the point, right? Like, like a headline. Many of us were hoping to see a headline this past Monday morning. Patriots win their sixth Super Bowl. But of course, nobody woke up to that. I don't know if they had headlines or newsies to shout out the headlines in the city of Babylon, but there was a lot going on in this city worthy of the front page headlines in the days of Daniel. So far within the book of Daniel, we've seen several stories worthy of being headlined. Nebuchadnezzar wins again, brings exiles from Judah to Babylon. Or king has terrible dream, all sorcerers and dream interpreters are to be killed. Or, like we've seen recently, Daniel to save the day. Can he do it? So much has already happened in the book of Daniel. And as we enter into the third chapter, you can see that the headlines are going to be getting a little bit more outrageous. Imagine with me, maybe the Babylon Times newspaper or the Babylon Bee. It's the 6th century BC. The headline of the newspaper says, King Nebuchadnezzar, near completion of his 90-foot statue. The following day, another newspaper, the Chaldean Chronicle, headlines, all expected for worship in the plain of Dura. And then a couple days later in the Hanging Gardens Gazette, three young boys escape furnace without a singed hair. Is their God the true God? Well, is he? Is their God the true God? Is the God of the Bible? The true and living God is the God whom you profess, trusting that you're here to worship this God. Is he the one and true God? And if he is the one and true God, the question that I have for you this morning, hopefully drawn from this text, is, is he worth suffering for? The three main points this morning are as follows. We must trust God before persecution. We must trust God during persecution. And we must trust God after persecution comes. I think for the last 200 some odd years since 1776, we have had not much to worry about in the area of persecution in regard to our religion. We are clearly in the first category, the first point of our sermon this morning. We must trust God before persecution. I don't want to be a a doomsday guy, but I do think about it from time to time because of what I do for a living and for what we do here week in and week out, if we'll always be doing things the way that we're doing them right now, will we always be worshiping like this until we all grow old together and eventually die off the scene? Will the next generations do things in the way that we are doing them right now? The way things seem to be shaping up is it doesn't seem as though the world is growing in their love for Christians. In fact, it seems like it's the opposite. 
that there may have been a day down south, maybe up here as well, I don't know, in previous generations, where to be a Christian would actually gain you a little something in the eyes of the world. That if you're a Christian and you're a a strong local member of the church in your town or in your area, then that would maybe help you to gain political office. Or maybe that would help you further your career and so forth. Whereas now it's starting to feel like in order to be a Christian, actually we do more harm than good. Granted, we still live in the freest nation on the planet. And we do. We have been able to worship freely as we want, saying what God's word says. We haven't had to worry a moment about it. Nobody is worried that the doors are about to break in and we're going to get taken to prison. And so in some ways it's almost shameful to say that we have been persecuted in any way when we consider what our brothers and sisters are experiencing right now across the world. But what happens if a time comes where we do have to worry about persecution? What happens when the world places a demand on us and tells us to bend the knee to a certain person or to a certain ideology when God tells us to do something clearly different? It appears that Daniel and his friends have been able to worship God within the city of Babylon in the way that they have wanted to. Because Babylonians worship so many gods, it would be no big deal if these three young men along with Daniel were worshiping their own true God. He was apparently a weak god anyway, right? Because Nebuchadnezzar had gone in and taken them out of their land. So he was a weak god. Might as well just let them have their way and worship him. But what would you do if suddenly your element of freedom of worship was stripped away from you? The president or the king says to you, bow before the image made of me. Or maybe... You must do what I tell you to do. I don't care what your God says within his Bible. You do what I say. You must bow before my commands. And what do you do? And again, I want to see these three things from this passage, all stemming from the fact that we must trust God in the fury and flames of persecution. We must trust God before the persecution comes. We must trust God while it's happening. And third, we trust God when it passes. And so first, we must trust God before the persecution even comes. Our text this morning, as you can see, it's slightly repetitive. And you can tell that the the satraps and the prefects and the governors and all of these fancy, important people, they're all there. This image, this statue event is a very uh, public event. It's a great situation with pomp and circumstance. The orchestra is full of all of these kinds of instruments that it lists again and again. And the most powerful people in Babylon are all gathered together in this place to commission this new statue. And so on this plain of Dura, Nebuchadnezzar sets up an incredible golden statue. In fact, if you noticed as we were reading through the passage that it says seven times the statue or the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, giving us a very clear understanding of who is the sole one behind this. In other words, this statue isn't being set up by the number one fan club of Nebuchadnezzar, right? This statue isn't being set up by his political party. This statue isn't being set up by his family in honor of him. This is all Nebuchadnezzar. This is the image. I want this. I want it this high. This is where I want it to be. And everybody is going to come up and worship it. And so he sets up this statue in the fashion of the image that we saw last week. You remember that he had this uh, dream with this frightening image. And you remember that the statue that he saw in the dream had various levels made out of it, uh, various different metals that represented other kings and other kingdoms. 
And so Daniel said that there would be kingdoms that would come after Nebuchadnezzar, which was represented by the golden head. You remember Nebuchadnezzar's golden head? And old Nebuchadnezzar decides to make the entire thing out of gold. I think we can properly read into this that Nebuchadnezzar is saying, no, that dream is not quite right. This great Babylon that I have built is going to remain and it is going to be solid gold. So I am the golden head. But I am not just the golden head. I have the golden chest and the golden arms and the golden abdomen and the golden legs and the golden feet. If there is a kingdom that is going to last forever, it would be Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. And so you imagine this statue. It lays it out there in in cubits, right? How many cubits are... And a cubit is from your finger to your elbow, right? A span is from here to here. A cubit is from here to here. But you times that by however many there and it's 90 feet tall. This is a 90-foot statue. You stack nine basketball hoops on top of each other, and you have the height of this statue. It's just mammoth and made out of gold. And so there it is in the plain of Dura, which for those interested, this is actually where the Tower of Babel would have been built back in Genesis 11. And the time had come for everyone to bow and to worship it. The persecution has not happened yet. Everybody is expected to fall in line. But look at verse 4 again. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so you notice that Nebuchadnezzar is not just asking the Babylonians to bow down to him. He's telling the nations that were gathered in that place to bow to him. The Olympics started this week, right? And all of the nations are gathered now in Pyeongchang. And can you imagine... If the president of that country stood up at the opening ceremony, the Olympic song gets played, and at the sound of that, everybody was to bow down to an image of him. Brothers and sisters, this is what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. As ridiculous as we would say, that would be absolutely crazy for all of those people from all of those different nations to bow down to this man or to bow down to an image that is cast in the form of this man. We'd say, that is, that is crazy. We would never do that. And Nebuchadnezzar, here he is, setting himself as such with the nations who were gathered there in Babylon that he had brought there, all peoples, nations, and languages, and they were to bow down when they heard the music. And friends, the only one who has the glory and the majesty to make a command like that of all nations is God himself. And he does make that command. God makes the command in Acts chapter 17 where Paul says, and now he is commanding all men everywhere to repent. Every man and every woman is commanded to bend the knee to God and to God alone. And when you run to the book of Revelation, you see that one day all of the nations gather together in that beautiful heavenly scene and they are bowing and worshiping the one true God. 
God alone can make this command. And yet here, Nebuchadnezzar is making it. So they're all commanded to worship. But for three young men who are in the spotlight in chapter 3 this week, their decision had already been made, and it apparently was not that difficult of a decision. Before Nebuchadnezzar built this statue and made up rules about falling down before it, these three men had already determined in their heart that they were going to follow after God. And so when the time came to bow before this thing, no, we're not going to do it because we've already determined in our own heart that we were going to trust in the sovereignty of our God. He's the one who has allowed us to be here. He's the one who has given us our position. He's the one who's given uh, us our nobility, which has given us a good place in this city to begin with. We are trusting in God. And so they knew certainly, minimally, the basic commands of God within the Ten Commandments, where it says, you shall have no other gods before me. And so clearly, upon this principle in God's word, within the Ten Commandments, where it says, don't do it, they said, absolutely not. We will not bow before. As Paul draws out in Romans chapter 1, that they would not serve the creature rather than the creator. How pathetic. And when you have an understanding of who God is, and when you have an understanding of what we're saying about this morning, about how He is holy. He's holy, holy, holy. He is the Trinity. He is the, the creator. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He is all-known. When you have an understanding of who God is, you will think it's so ridiculous to bow before anything or anyone else. You would see how pathetic it would be to worship any man or an image or a lifestyle or a gadget or a car or anything else. We know here the true God of the universe. The God who created everything. The God in whose image that we have been made. So how dare we ever bow to an image of a man when we have been made in the image of God. These three men trusted in God before the persecution began and so must we. But second, they trusted God during the persecution. Many of you have probably never heard of the name August Landmesser. I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing that right. It's a German name. It's believed that Landmesser was the man in a famous picture, maybe you have seen this, of a group of workers in 1936 in Nazi Germany during a naval training vessel launch. And if a picture is worth a thousand words, this picture is likely worth more. Within this picture, you see all of these workers who have built this naval vessel. So many of them with their hands up in the Hitler salute, that Nazi salute. Yet there is just very obviously within the picture, it just jumps right out at you. There's a man who's standing there like this. An obvious stance of defiance. You tell your child to do something and they do this. And this man is standing there in that picture. Everybody else? And in like manner, these three young men refuse to bow. They refuse to worship. They did not agree. They were not going to bow the knee to the statue. But be sure that there were going to people who are going to, they're going to be people who take notice of this. Look at verse 8 again. So therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Remember the Chaldeans were that whole group of magicians and all of these people. So they maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery flame. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods 
or worship the golden image that you have set up. Brothers and sisters, we must trust in God when the persecution comes, which is the current place where they are right now. We must trust God while persecution is happening. These men go before the king and they essentially rat out these young Jewish boys. They say, they don't pay any attention to you. They do not serve your gods. They do not worship your golden image. These are the Jews that you have set up over this province in Babylon. So you can kind of hear a little bit of an inkling of laying blame at Nebuchadnezzar's feet, can't you? For daring to allow these Jewish men who do not ultimately honor him uh, to be powerful in the land of Babylon. And so, of course, the, the king is in a rage now when he demands to speak with the three young men. He tells them if they continue to refuse, that they will be cast in the fiery furnace, just like anybody else who uh, would refuse. And so their position as being set up, remember in the end of chapter 2 last week, that Daniel kind of put in a good word, and these three young men were brought up to a high position within the province of Babylon. And so he basically says, you're going to go in just like anybody else if you do not bow No clout that they had received, no position would save them. So you either worship me, or you go into the flames. And do you see how they respond in verse 16? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And he's furious. In a rage, he commands this furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual. He gives the order that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cast into the flames. The flames are so hot that these mighty warriors that actually brought them to the flames end up dying before they even get there. And so this is like a, a mini sun on the earth. Boiling hot hardly describes how hot this furnace is. The text says that it overheated, which is why those men died. Yet down tumble the three men into their fiery grave. Or so they thought. Does their trust in God in the face of persecution not astound you? The most powerful king on the planet, you must bow. Three young Jewish boys who are exiles in a land that was not their own. No. Nebuchadnezzar has even asked them, and who will deliver you out of my hand? What God will deliver you out of my hand? And they give an answer. Our God is able to deliver us from the furnace. But even if he decides not to, we're not going to bow. These men were following God and there was no turning back. That The line in the sand had been drawn. Their fate was sealed. And so what could possibly embolden them to take such a stand? Wouldn't it have been better? And maybe they could have thought about this a little bit. To say, you know what, let's go ahead and just avoid, avoid confrontation. Let's avoid getting ourselves into trouble. We'll just kind of bow, but we won't worship. Maybe we'll do a half bow, like enough to get it to pass. You know, because Babylon needs us. We're the the children of God, and they need godly people around to maybe help them a little bit. So we, we really should just bow, and we won't worship. Maybe when we bow, we'll actually lift up some prayers to our God, and everything will just kind of be awash. We see the same type of action, though, in terms of their boldness. 
over in Acts chapter 5, another scene of persecution where a couple of the apostles are being persecuted and they look into the eyes of their persecutors and give this famous line, we must obey God rather than men. And brothers and sisters, there may come a time where you need to obey God rather than men. And it could very well bring persecution to your doorstep. And we're not talking about, oh, I think I heard a whisper, and I I don't think God wants me to pay my taxes. So now I'm being persecuted. That's not it. You obey your boss. You obey the government. You obey man insofar as what they are telling you to do is not contrary to the clear teaching of Scripture. But if you're taking your stand on a clear biblical principle and the world is telling you to bend your knee, don't do it. We must obey God rather than men in those circumstances. And I think the whole demeanor of these men give us a demeanor to take with us as well. These guys aren't flipping out. They're not going crazy, right? They're not going up to Nebuchadnezzar. I can't believe you're, you're so dumb. I can't believe you were making... They're not making a scene. They're just not doing it. They're just refusing, refusing to bow the knee. There was a great lesson of even their demeanor that we could take over in our own demeanor. That if the government or your boss or whoever tells you, you know what, I need you to lie on this. I need you to do this. Don't do it. Refuse. The object of the faith of these young men was God himself, whom they could not see. Yet he was greater to them than anything or anyone that they could see. And so go ahead and and build a 90-foot golden statue. Our God is greater. This thing that is meant to represent how powerful and how long you think that your kingdom is going to last, it is nothing in comparison to our God. These three understood and saw God clearly for who He is and worshipped Him as such. And because of that, they could withstand the persecution that was coming to them. I like what Brian Chappell has said. He said, Biblical faith is not confidence in particular outcomes. It is confidence in a sovereign God. It's not confidence in what you think or hope the outcome of obeying God is going to be. It's simply trusting in God and God alone. And friends, this is our own pathway of discipleship. The way is narrow that leads to eternal life. It's written in Acts chapter 14 that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We were never promised easy street. Many, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Persecution and suffering and tribulations are simply a part of being a Christian. It is part of the life uh, for so many Christians around the globe and has been a part of lives uh, of thousands upon thousands of Christians for thousands of years. If the king of our religion died on the cross, why should we ultimately expect a better outcome for ourselves? These young men, they stand before the king and they display their rock-solid resolve in their God and his power to deliver them. And they refuse to do anything other than serve him, whether by life Or by death. So I will honor God in my life. Or I will honor God in my death. It is not for me to decide what that outcome is. But don't read into this text that they're flippant with their lives. This isn't a flippancy. This is resolve. What you're seeing is simply the resolve to live their lives for God's glory. Or to die for God's glory. 
The resolve that it would be better for them to yield their lives over and to honor God by doing so than save their lives and dishonor God by doing so. And so you want me to bow down to your image or worship you and death is going to be the consequence? Then off with my head. Then off to the fiery furnace we go. Because the reality is for these three and for every Christian, you can't take my life away from me. You can't take our lives away from us. We've already been given eternal life. How can you take eternal life away from me when it's already been given to me by God? No amount of persecution can take your life away. My life has already been ransomed. Your life has already been ransomed. It's already been won. It's already been given away to Jesus. So you might take my body away from me, but you give me uh, the ultimate opportunity to fly home and be with Jesus. I I think C.S. Lewis got it right when he was talking about how we understand ourselves ontologically speaking. He says, you are a soul. You have a body. You are a soul. You just happen to have a body. Yet so many of us would rather trade our soul for our body. But Nebuchadnezzar couldn't do anything to the souls of these men. And nobody on earth, Christian, can destroy your soul. Can do anything to your soul. They might be able to take away your body. But that is not ultimately who you are anyway. If they take your body away, you're ultimately going to be getting a glorified one anyway. So let them have it and go be with Jesus. Just don't dishonor God. Glorify God in your life. And it comes with, with, if, if persecution brings you to the doorstep of death, go there glorifying God. If the consequences of obeying God in the midst of persecution means that you are led to a fiery furnace, then you walk to the fiery furnace with your confidence in God, knowing that he will glorify himself, whether he decides to deliver you or, like they confess here, he might not. I think we have a a bad understanding of what it means to follow Jesus in the evangelical church. Because when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow after me, Do we really think that that's going to happen? I I think most of us, when we kind of signed on the dotted line, it wasn't during wartime. So we're kind of like, okay, we'll just kind of serve for a while. It'll be peaceable. We'll be fine. But then you understand that putting your cross on your back and actually following after Jesus could ultimately mean a kind of death that he went to. And the kind of death that so many have gone through throughout the history of the world. And it might just be God's will that you die for him. Should we count that strange? We do think it's strange because it's 2018 in America. But what if it changes? If persecution comes, will we scatter? If persecution comes, will we just, no, I really can't, I'll put it down. Or will we be willing to go to the death and glorify Jesus, whether by life or by death? With the words of Job on your lips, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Or the words of Paul in Philippians 1, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. That Christ would be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. 
We've recently sung here, when through fiery trials, thy pathway shall lie. My grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. It may kill you, but it won't hurt you. Friends, I labor on this point because of how often we build our hope and our confidence on the shifting sand of everything else that is going on around us instead of fixing our confidence on our sovereign God. The only certainty is uncertainty. The stock market was the highest it had ever been about a week ago, and then it dropped way down last week. The political stuff across the nation, it goes with the breeze. Even the people that you love change and disappoint us and act wickedly, or even something like our health is uncertain. God is simply the only constant in the universe. This is why that people who are depending on things that are outside of God are up and down like an elevator. How are you doing? Well, I'm not doing so good. I'm way down here because my life is dependent on my circumstances. But the people who have their hope and trust in God and God alone before persecution, during the persecution, and after the persecution, they are the ones who are not shaken. They are the ones who live a more consistent life because they are, they are basing their life on a constant, something that will not change. And so often, even though we say our hope is set on God, we end up getting shaky because we're not God and we don't know what outcome he's going to bring for us. We know he's able to deliver us, but the thing about it is he might not. He might want you to suffer in a peaceful and joyful way, trusting that whatever he allows is for your good and for his glory. But be not dismayed, whatever be tied. God will take care of you. But what ends up happening to these three men? We left them in verse 18. They get thrown into the flames. But look at verse 24 with me. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king, He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods thrown into the flames. Remarkably, this is a fulfillment of a clear promise of God over in the book of Isaiah 43, where he says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. And the flame would not hurt them. In fact, this scene is made all the more interesting by a fourth character who is in the furnace with them. And many have advocated that this is a, what is called a Christophany, mainly due to the way I think the King James translated this text, where it explicitly says, the Son of God, whereas many of the translations in your laps would say, Son of the Gods. The New King James echoes the King James and says Son of God, but again, chances are that if you have any other version, it probably says Son of the Gods in verse 25. And so the question is, is this a Christophany? And I don't think I'm going to satisfy many of you, but I, I don't think we can be totally sure. I think most of us, including myself, we've always been taught that this is absolutely Jesus in the flames with them, and it very well could have been. But you look at verse 28, and Nebuchadnezzar references that it was an angel. 
You look over in a couple chapters in chapter 6 and we'll get there. But we'll see an angel that comes into the lion's den to, with Daniel to assist him. So it would be kind of odd for me. There's a lot of parallels within Daniel to say it was Jesus here, but it was an angel there. But there again, I'm just telling you that I'm not quite sure. Was it Jesus or was it an angel? But regardless of what you decide to believe on that, and either position I think is totally fine, I don't think that the point is necessarily whether it was an angel or Jesus, because whether the fourth individual in the flame was an angel or whether it was Jesus, the truth is that God had sent protection. And I think that's the clear point here. That if it was an angel, great. Protection and comfort came through it. If it was Jesus, fantastic. Protection and comfort came through him. These young men told Nebuchadnezzar that their God had the power to deliver them. And although they didn't know he was going to, he provided for them protection. Friends, we must not only trust God before the persecution and during it, but we must trust him after the persecution. Nebuchadnezzar calls out to these men and he tells them to to come out of the fire. Obviously, he can't jump in. He's not that trusting of Yahweh at this point. But he asks them to come out of the flames and the Babylonians, they begin to inspect these three young men. No smell of smoke on them. No harm to their clothes. No singed hair, right? Completely and utterly protected, not just from the flames, but from the smell of the flames. I mean, I can't grill a hamburger without singeing some of the hair off of my hands. I mean, like when they come out of the flame, like when they were expecting, they touch them like it could be hot. Like burn my hands if I touch Shadrach right now. But look how Nebuchadnezzar responds in verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. That's incredible. What an incredible response from a pagan man to say, good on you for setting aside my command and blessed be God. There are a couple situations that come up on Anybody who has been persecuted, either they are persecuted and the persecution ends up maybe waning or eventually stops, or they are persecuted until the end of their life and they die and it stops. And in either case, God always gets the glory. Do you see what Nebuchadnezzar is beginning to recognize about these young men along with Daniel? What an impact they must have had. He says it. He says they trust God. That they are willing to set aside a king's command for God's commands. Willing to yield up their bodies rather than to serve anyone else but their own God. And friends, do a little digging in church history. And you are going to find this all over the pages of it. You look through and you're going to see people who were persecuted from the Colosseum being thrown in. To to fight to the death or being stuck in in Rome and wrapped to to poles and set on fire in order to light up Rome. I mean, think of an example even more recent in the 20th century with somebody like Jim Elliott who goes down to Ecuador and he's with the Alca Indians and he does all of this uh, preliminary work and then eventually he gets killed by the very people he was going to give the gospel to. And then his wife writes a book in response after her husband gloriously dies and enters the uh, throne room of heaven and she writes, 
through the gates of splendor. Like there is something different when you see a Christian being persecuted and a non-Christian being persecuted. There's a totally different reaction. And there's a totally different reaction from the group of people. Because we can look as Christians at Jim Elliot or many of the other martyrs throughout the history of the church. And we can say, glorious, right? You can say, his life was not wasted. He was a young man who gave his life. And what ended up happening with that group of people, so many of them ended up becoming Christians as a result of his sacrifice. And sometimes God is going to allow persecution to become so hot and heavy that it will take your life. But beyond that, your life was a means to his end of saving people. And we can, as Christians, give the glory. As so many have said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The world looks on in amazement at the response of Christians following persecution. But we just say, this is what we signed up for. Beloved, persecution might come. And the ending for us may not be that the king or the president in our lifetime or whoever ends up blessing God. The ending may not be a promotion for us like for these men at the end of chapter 3. Get their God. Nebuchadnezzar blesses their God and they end up getting a promotion And that may not happen, but that's not what matters. What matters is that we trusted God and that we trusted him before, during, and after the persecution. And so that when that persecution came, we glorified him in it. That the suffering produced within us an endurance to endure even more so for the sake of Jesus. Knowing that what the hymn writer said is true. Whatever my God ordains is right. Here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to him I leave it all. Whatever your God ordains is right for you, Christian. Trust in him before, during, and after the fury and flames of persecution. Let's pray. Lord, we learn much from the example of these young men and we learn much by how they point us to your son.